were you as underwhelmed as I was by this G7 declaration that they're going to ban Russian gold exports? I mean, I wonder if any of them watched the speech that Putin gave last week at that St. Petersburg Economic Forum, basically the Russian equivalent of the World Economic Forum, where he was saying that we're moving towards a hard asset financial system and that basically the money printer people, that that era is coming to an end. And I just wonder if anybody in the G7 actually watched his speech. And I'm starting to think they didn't because here they go. They're, it's available on YouTube, by the way. And so now they're banning Russian gold exports. And I mean, I was looking at the CNBC article. They expect this to be like 10 or $20 billion a year. Yeah, here it is. Banning Russian gold. This is CNBC. The restrictions on Russian exports of gold is worth about $15 billion a year to Moscow. Creon Butler, director of economy and finance program at Chatham House, told CNBC, quote, that's potentially quite significant, he said, but highlighted that's not something that will necessarily get a buy-in from all the nations in the G7. So they can't even agree on this. Quote, that illustrates the problem. There are a number of concrete things they can do But whether they can pull off a unified G7 approach, let alone bringing in other countries, I think this is going to be a challenge. So G7 finding it hard to unify on banning gold exports, I don't know what they're doing, to be honest. I mean, I'm still befuddled by this whole thing. And then the foreign ministers at the G7, I mean, it was really interesting. I highly recommend you look at the BRICS summit declaration, the communique that came out. And these are like rival conferences. We had the BRICS summit was, I believe, June 23rd and 24th. And the G7 is finishing up today. It was June 26th to 28th. So rival, again, from a narrative perspective, we see this division in the world happening. And what's a little wild about it from a Western perspective is the West is increasingly isolated. It's just the West. And they put out, you know, they're finally, they put out their own kind of Belt and Road Initiative. $600 billion coming from who knows where to fund initiatives to increase trade with the, you know, so-called global south. You know, like China has been talking about this Belt and Road Initiative for years. And now with their back against the wall and they see the world fragmenting, now they decide, the West decides to make a move and, you know, build some trade networks. And I'm sure it's not like there wasn't trade networks before. But now that it's in the West's interest to do it, all of a sudden, okay, we're going to spend $600 billion. Again, I don't know where the money comes from. I guess all G7 contribute. Now, another thing about this gold export thing, it's just kind of in the news. And to me, again, it's just kind of symbolic of what's going on right now. I mean, so they hope that there's going to be a 10 to $20 billion hit to Russia. Meanwhile, their trade surplus is at records. Like I just did a search on, you know, Russia trade surplus, and it's like The Economist from May, so this is like a month ago, Russia is on track for a record trade surplus. You know, Bloomberg in April, Russia export windfall catapults key trade barometer to record. Current account surplus is biggest in decades thanks to exports. And they're set for a $300 billion in just energy exports this year. So does 10 to $20 billion like even move the needle? And they're probably happy to keep their gold. They're probably like, you know, all the better that they don't get our gold. Another own goal by the West is probably how they're thinking about it. And finally, just on this, I was looking at the communique, because that's what we do at the Northern Miner podcast. 
I was looking at the BRICS communique, and by the way, Argentina and Iran, right after the conference, want to apply to the BRICS. So things are happening fast here in historic times. I was looking at the communique, you know, it's 75 points, probably takes you 20 minutes to read. I just sort of grazed it. But I did a search. The United States was only mentioned once halfway through in regard to nuclear proliferation. And basically, we want to reduce nuclear proliferation. Europe wasn't mentioned once. I did a search on the word France, nothing. So to wrap this all up here, what I see happening is the BRICS, are, they're just doing their own thing. They're just going, you know what, between Russia and China and Brazil and India, we don't need the West. And you got to wonder, like, you know, Henry Kissinger, people say the biggest fear that Henry Kissinger had was pushing Russia into the arms of China, is basically Russia and China teaming up. And now we have it. Like, I don't know if you saw those pictures that came out, Putin giving a big cheers at the BRICS summit, and then Xi, big, I've never seen authoritarians look so happy honestly. And that spoke volumes. And then you look, finally, then you look at the G7 foreign ministers communique, G7 foreign ministers meeting, chair's statement, and it's all about Russia. So the West digs its heels in. Now, over to commodities, they have taken a big hit. And we have some very interesting stories here at mining.com. We're going to read the story Metals haven't crashed this hard since the Great Recession. Copper, copper's at $3.83, so it's coming down. I mean, I'm just sort of like licking my lips here with anticipation. If we can get like a $2.50 or $3 copper, I may, you know, start to get into these things because it sort of felt like the move had been made. But if we get some big recession uh, fear, and again, not financial advice, uh, but copper... I mean, it's looking interesting. And we have another story from Goldman Sachs that we're going to read. Uh, commodities face recession test even as Goldman stays bullish. So that's Bloomberg via mining.com. So we're going to take a look at both of those stories and kind of discuss what's going on and what kind of opportunities we see here. So fascinating episode coming up and our final installment of the Global Mining Symposium. We have a thought leadership presentation by Prospector Portal and they tackle once again this idea of what the mining industry can do to be more attractive to investors. And I think they actually kind of nailed it. There are two things it can do. It can promote the environmental aspect, which is something we've been talking about on this program for dozens of episodes, where the mining industry should simply just take a page out of Cameco's playbook, which is basically saying, you know, Cameco used to be seen as, uh, you know, a company that was destroying the earth. And now it's arguably, at least it's PR push for the last five years, this is a company that can save the earth. And so that was discussed as basically the mining industry should be taking an environmental approach that, you know, what is it? Mining is required to save the planet was what Nolan Peterson was saying from World Copper. And I think he's absolutely right like that. But this also brings up another point, though, and I just don't think that the mining industry, frankly, needs to do anything to be liked. And this brought to the other point. If you want to attract stock investors, the way you attract stock investors is through price performance. And they discuss this as well. 
all the marketing in the world is not going to matter for a stock investor if your stocks are not doing that well. So it's really investors chase performance. And if you have $10,000 gold, let me tell you, gold's going to be pretty glamorous as an investment and it's going to be seen as pretty cool. So a really interesting discussion hosted by Emily King, who is the founder of Prospector Portal. I believe she's out of Florida. So as the world turns, I mean, final thing on this BRICS thing. This was point fifty four. Again, I was just sort of like glancing at this, but this one sort of stood out to me because we have a couple of uh, ESG stories, environmental stories coming up. Point fifty four of the BRICS communique. We oppose green trade barriers and reiterate our commitment to enhancing coordination on these issues. We underline that all measures taken to tackle climate change and biodiversity loss must be designed, adopted, and implemented in full conformity with the WTO agreements and must not constitute a means of arbitrary or unjustifiable discrimination or a disguised restriction on international trade and must not create unnecessary obstacles to international trade. So if you want to see how ESG is perceived from some of these BRIC countries, sometimes we assume that everybody just agrees with ESG. So we'll tackle kind of what's going on with ESG. We're going to take a second look at ESG here and how the tide might be shifting from a sociological point of view on where all this stuff is going. Are cracks starting to form here? on this whole issue, which is kind of fascinating and unexpected. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have this big article from Bloomberg via mining.com. Metals haven't crashed this hard since the Great Recession, and the numbers are quite dramatic. Industrial metals are on track for the worst quarter since the 2008 financial crisis, as prices are pummeled by recession worries. It's a reminder to investors, no matter how good the story sounds, buy low, sell high. Do not buy high. I mean, James Dines had the quip, buy high, sell higher. And I think what he meant is wait for the breakout and then, you know, ride it up and then sell. But especially in tricky markets, buy low, sell high. Copper, the greatest economic bellwether, has ricocheted into a bear market from a record four months ago, while tin just tumbled 21% in its worst week since the 1980s crisis froze London trading for four years. Now, it seems a little premature to declare victory over commodity prices here. For a metal like copper, its uses in everything from heavy industrial machinery to advanced electronics mean the market is tightly linked to economic shifts. And the retreat marks a signal from commodity markets that efforts to get prices back under control are having some early successes. The mood in metals has soured even as Chinese COVID-19 lockdowns start to ease and there are signs that traders there are betting copper prices will fall further. Quote, even if China recovers in the second half, it won't be able to single-handedly boost prices back to new highs. That age has gone, says Amelia Zhao Fu, head of commodity strategy at BOCI Global Commodities in London. Quote, if other major economies are heading towards a recession, China won't be growing at exceptional rates either. Fair point. Chinese manufacturing activity is already shrinking, and S&P Global gauges on Thursday showed European manufacturing output contracting for the first time in two years. 
while U.S. output hit a 23-month low. Even so, the magnitude of the accelerating sell-off, I mean, it is getting a little exaggerated, the language here. Yes, things are bad, but it's also had quite a run. Uh, We are not seeing the lows that we saw two years ago. Even so, the magnitude of the accelerating sell-off in copper and other industrial metals suggests that investors are betting on much steeper declines in demand in the coming weeks. Okay, fair enough. In the coming weeks, but where do you think it's going to be a year from now? Copper hit a 16-month low of $8,122.50 a ton on the London Metal Exchange on Friday, with an 11% drop so far in June, putting it on course for one of the biggest monthly losses of the past 30 years. Metals from aluminum to zinc have also plunged, and the Bloomberg Industrial Metal Spot Subindex is down 26% this quarter, headed for the biggest drop since the end of 2008. Tin has more than halved from its March peak. You know, just turning to our metal prices here, because this article is kind of like jumping up and down saying, this is the biggest drop ever and it's all going down further. You know, just for context here, um, two and a half years ago, tin was at $6.88, okay, $6.51, and today it's at $11.36 after a, you know, 50% sell-off. So if you zoom out, tins is not doing bad if you bought two and a half years ago. So just to put it in context, because this article, the language in this article, to me, for a Bloomberg article, they're not being objective enough in their language is sort of my little criticism here. They're kind of jumping up and down. And here it continues. Metals have been harder hit than any other commodities like crops and energy, where supplies and trade have been more forcefully affected by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Bloomberg Energy Spot Subindex is up 10% this, since the end of March, while a corresponding agricultural index fell 9.7%. So energy is up 10%. Yet copper and several other metal markets are still facing some of the tightest supply conditions ever. Well, okay, a little bit of balance here. With inventories dwindling globally and a little sign of significant new supply, even staunch copper bulls like Goldman Sachs had warned that demand destruction may be necessary to help ease the strain. The route in industrial metals started earlier this month after the Federal Reserve hiked interest rates by 75 basis points and warned that its effort to bring rampant inflation back under control was sparking a recession. But the sell-off accelerated last week even as investors in other markets start to price in an earlier end to the Fed's rate hike cycle. And there's a quote from Fu. Some of the so-called tourists have decided they want to get out for the time being, And from a trading perspective, that makes sense. But fundamentally, these markets are still very tight. Well, exactly. You know, markets go up and down, and commodity markets do have a reputation for being more volatile than even stocks. We have a follow-up article from Bloomberg News via mining.com. Commodities face recession test, even as Goldman stays bullish. So it's kind of like part two here. And this is from June 27th, so yesterday. Commodities are hitting powerful headwinds after a first half dominated by the supply turmoil and inflationary shocks unleashed by Russia's attack on Ukraine. Below, What to Watch looks at what the second half holds for raw materials from natural gas and crude to grains, gold, iron ore, and lithium. Across markets, there's growing talk that high prices for raw materials will be cured only by recessions in the second half. Oil has sunk towards $100 a barrel, metals are poised for a deep quarterly slump, and there's a cool-off in crops. But the bearish view will be tested. Goldman Sachs Group, among the more bullish commodity watchers, just said that prices haven't yet topped out. 
That's even with Bloomberg's index of spot commodities down 13% from a record. Quote, we agree that when the economy is in a recession for long enough, commodity demand falls and hence prices fall. Analysts, including Jeffrey Curry, wrote in a note, and they continue, yet we are not yet at that state with economic growth and end-user demand simply slowing, not falling outright. So the commodities thesis is being questioned right now, and Jeffrey Curry is out there saying, hold your horses, this ain't over yet. Continuing on, we have Germany's economy minister saying last week, quote, even if we don't feel it yet, we are in a gas crisis. The article continues, Russia's squeeze on flows to Europe risks a historic global shortage and higher prices still, with peak demand looming this winter. Consumer nations are preparing to run economies without the fuel and competition for liquefied natural gas between Europe and Asia will intensify, all the more so if a key U.S. export plant stays shut. Expensive gas will increase power bills for households and businesses, and a full-blown crisis would shut industries from chemicals to fertilizers, fanning the flames of global inflation. And just scrolling down, is the food crisis past its worst? There's growing talk that grains and cooking oil prices have peaked. And maybe global food costs have too. Well, let's hope so, but I'm not getting too optimistic as these guys are. More supply is on the way, with winter wheat harvest getting underway in the northern hemisphere and spring wheat, corn, and soybeans following later. The focus then turns to production in Australia, Brazil, and Argentina. Barring weather woes, output could rise as farmers plant more in response to elevated prices. Well, maybe the markets work. Fingers crossed. Global stockpiles will remain crimped in the coming season, and millions of tons of grain are stuck in Ukraine, but they may not get substantially tighter. Some Ukrainian cargoes are reaching Europe, while Russia is heading for a bumper crop. Palm oil, the world's most consumed edible oil, just slumped to its lowest level this year, its top producer Indonesia ramps up exports, while wheat, corn, and soybeans have tumbled from their highs. Global food costs have already fallen from their all-time peak in March, and more declines could follow. You know, it's pretty amazing that, you know, the Fed raising interest rates, like 0.75%, I mean, it's tempting. I mean, maybe it has nothing to do with that, but it's tempting to attribute that cause. And just a look at oil... Finally, refined products from gasoline to diesel are the oil market's hotspots right now, and the big question for the second half is whether demand can be sustained amid rocketing prices. A cocktail of fuel subsidies keeping consumption afloat together with limited refining capacity has powered rallies that have outstripped crude prices. U.S. gasoline at $5 a gallon has caught political attention and could trigger policy action ahead of the November midterm elections. There's little consensus on what happens next in crude, but we can expect louder discussions about how much OPEC and its allies can or will pump, especially if prices stick above $100 a barrel. While Citigroup's veteran oil watcher Ed Morse sees crude easing to $80 by the fourth quarter on, quote, strong headwinds to growth. Goldman Sachs is among notable bulls, saying oil prices need more gains to normalize unsustainably low inventories. So yeah, I mean, people were getting very bullish and there's more. They have more on batteries there. And we'll just take a look at gold here since we went in depth in the intro. After spiking to a record after Russia's invasion, gold is close to where it started this year. And consensus forecasts for the fourth quarter put prices just a smidgen above where they are now. If that looks a bit boring, remember that powerful forces keeping the precious metal in check speak directly to the dynamics shaping wider commodity markets. 
Certainly, gold faces some intimidating headwinds, outsized interest rate hikes from the Fed and other central banks, a strong dollar, and struggling physical demand in top consumer China. You know, Gareth Soloway made a point recently, the technical trader who you see all over YouTube, who we've interviewed on this program, he mentioned that, you know what, gold is one of the best performing assets of the year and it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's incredible that it's held its price within the context of a stronger dollar and higher interest rate. And turning to our next story, the Mining Association of Canada has taken a poll and it shows that public support is at an all-time high for Canadian miners. Let's take a closer look. This is by Marilyn Scales and is available on northernminer.com. The Mining Association of Canada released a new national poll that for the first time finds high levels of support for Canadian mining. For the first time, the shift indicated increased understanding of the role Canada's mining industry must play in producing the green technologies essential to a low-carbon future. For the past 12 years, Mac has worked with Abacus Data to assess public opinion on Canada's mining sector. This year, support is at an all-time high, with 80% reporting that they have a positive feeling about miners in Canada, and 78% saying they have a positive feeling about Canadian mining companies. Other highlights include... 84% give mining companies in Canada a good or acceptable performance in contributing to new materials for use in greener and cleaner technologies. 83% say they would like to see more mining projects in Canada, provided they have a plan to reduce GHG emissions. 81% say Canada should remain in the oil business, provided our barrels are produced by companies that achieve a net zero emissions target. So 19%, even with zero emissions target achieved... Still 19% would say we don't want oil. Now, call me skeptical on the reasons. Like, I would like to see the questions for this survey, but it seems like everything is being kind of framed. And maybe it's the case that the public has understood that mining can actually help from an environmental perspective. But my take is everybody is paying through the nose for their gas and their costs are going up like crazy And it was kind of like our earlier episode where we were saying, drill, baby, drill. I think people just are like, you know what? We think the oil companies are doing a good enough job. We think they've been under a lot of, you know, scrutiny and pressure. Just drill, baby, drill. That's what I see going on here. I don't think it's necessarily some big enlightenment. Maybe it's a combination of the two. Continuing on, 80% say we need a strong mining sector for Canada's economy to be healthy over the long term. 80% give Canadian mining companies good or acceptable ratings when it comes to the way they operate in other jurisdictions. 79% give mining companies operating in Canada a good or acceptable performance in their efforts to reduce environmental impact. I mean, it's a little suspect too. I mean, not to give these guys a hard time, but all of the rates are between 78 and 83%. We had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight questions, and they were all within that 4% span. This is interesting, and it's outside of this range. Upon learning about Canada's leadership in sustainable mining via the Towards Sustainable Mining Standard, 88% believe it is a good idea for government to support Canadian companies that adhere to such standards in their effort to win in export markets and to attract investment to Canada. So we have a quote from Pierre Graton. Mac President and CEO, this year's polling data clearly shows that Canadians are becoming increasingly aware of the fact that the minerals and metals industry is a key partner in accomplishing our goals of a greener future. As one of the lowest carbon intensity producers of mineral and metal products in the world, 
There is no doubt that Canada fulfills that need for mine materials better than most competing mining jurisdictions, and we are pleased to see this recognition by the public at large. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it seems to me, I would like to see the questions. I mean, maybe it's through the poll that people are becoming educated that, oh, it's not so bad. Like, I want to see the questions. Quote, Canadians care about climate action and decarbonization and expect progress, end quote, said Bruce Anderson, chairman of Abacus Data. This year's numbers reveal two important trends. First, Canadians are seeing economic, exactly, Canadians are seeing economic opportunities in the mining sector when it comes to the future of uses of sustainably produced minerals and metals. And second, that they observe Canadian mining companies moving in a good direction across a range of priorities from environmental stewardship to emission reductions to Indigenous relations. So I think that's exactly right. Number one is economics on this. I don't think, I could be wrong, but that's just my take. And I, I think, put it this way, I think Bruce Anderson hit the nail on the head here. Uh, this is about economics. And by the way, we're glad that there's good progress on the environment, emissions reductions, and Indigenous relations. That's my take on it. I think uh, with the oil energy crisis, uh, people are, they got an education through through their credit cards that energy matters and that, you know, mining and, and oil drilling matters. Final story, EU strengthens position against deep sea mining. And we're running short on time here, but I did want to touch this. Valentina Ruiz Leotode, just a few days ahead of the second UN Ocean Conference taking place in Lisbon from June 27th to July 1st, the European Commission issued a communique that, among other things, strengthens the bloc's position against deep sea mining. The idea of banning mineral extraction in the exclusive economic zones of EU countries was one of the many items on the EU agenda on international ocean governance, which is to be presented in Portugal by Joseph Borrell, High Representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, and Virginia Sincovicius, Commissioner for the Environment, Ocean, and Fisheries. You know, when you see these titles of the EU, it sounds more and more like a monarchy uh, to editorialize. The High Representative of the European Union, like, so the document starts by acknowledging exacerbated impact of climate change and the dangerous decline of biodiversity affecting the global ocean and sets the EU's commitment to, quote, protect the seabed by prohibiting deep sea mining, which destroys the seabed and regulating where necessary the use of fishing gear that are most harmful to biodiversity. The new agenda is considered an important part of the European Green Deal, and it also builds on previous calls issued by the group to prohibit deep sea mining until scientific gaps are properly filled and it is possible to ensure that the extraction of gold, copper, or rare earths from the seabed has no harmful effects on marine ecosystems. You know, I don't know. We interviewed Gerard Barron of Deep Green Metals. Now, I looked them up. They have a different name now. They're called the Metals Company. Maybe Deep Green was too controversial and probably just attracted protesters. But I was looking on their website, polymetallic nodules are the cleanest path towards electric vehicles. And all they do, from my understanding, at least according to Gerard Barron in our interview that we did a year or two ago, is they just pick these things up off the seafloor. Like it sounds like one of the cleanest ways to get metal. And it sounds like there's a ton of these things. Now, yeah, you do have to be careful, but these guys are just outright banning it from the sounds of it or want to. So 
I just wanted to touch on that just so that we're all aware of what's going on here. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. Let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year bond. It is at 3.219%. That is 0.08% lower than last week. So coming down a bit from some of those highs we saw in the last two weeks and possibly recession fears uh, bringing down interest rates a little bit. Turning to our metals Gold is trading at $1,827.78 per ounce. That is $6 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $21.33 per ounce. That is $0.32 lower than last week. And platinum is trading at $917.79 per ounce. That is $24 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,913.25 per ounce. That is $44 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is at $3.76 per pound. That is $0.37 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is only a penny lower at $1.11 per pound. Lead is $0.08 cents lower at $0.86 cents per pound. Nickel is at $10.39 per pound. That is $1.14 lower than last week, and tin is at $11.36 per pound. That is $3.66 lower than last week, so a significant drop there. Cobalt is at $32.52 per pound. That is three cents lower. And zinc is a penny lower at $1.61 per pound. So what we see is a continuation of last week where metal prices started to come down mostly based on this recession fears and basically when the Fed hiked interest rates, 0.75%. So that's all there really is to it. Precious metals down a bit, but nothing too dramatic. With palladium, the one standout here, higher and aluminum, you can tell that market's tight because it was only down a penny and zinc as well. So you can kind of, I mean, my takeaway from this week's metal prices episode is you can tell the tight markets, zinc down, only a penny, sounds tight. Aluminum down, only a penny, sounds tight. And palladium, up, sounds tight. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the Prospector Portal Thought Leadership Panel at the Global Mining Symposium featuring moderator Emily King, who is founder of Prospector Portal. Belinda Labatt, CEO of Lomico Metals, Nolan Peterson, CEO of World Copper, and Martine Turen, CEO of FPX Nickel. And the panel discusses how the mining industry should embrace a strong environmental message to attract talent and investment and help price performance is the best marketing for stock investors. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. kick off this conversation. 
Today on the panel, we'll have Martin, Nolan, and Belinda, and really hope that this really turns into a conversation. One of the reasons why we propose this topic, I think everybody in the industry understands that all of the minerals that we mine are so critical to the electrification of the world and the conversion to a low carbon economy. And one of the things that we're really excited about at Prospector and focus on a lot is how can we encourage non-traditional mining investors to come into the space, right? And to make that specific, I always talk to my team at Prospector, how can we communicate data about companies and minerals and the industry as a whole to convert a Tesla investor to a mining investor? Because I don't know about you all, but uh, when I talk to folks sometimes who are non-traditional, so maybe millennial investors, family offices, other institutions like car companies, right? Why don't you invest in the mining sector? The number one answer I get is, well, I don't understand geology or I don't know anything about mining. I tend to respond, well, do you really know how an electric vehicle battery works? Because that doesn't really stop you from buying stock in Tesla, right? So clearly there's some stuff going on in the industry in terms of where people are interested in, in the technology that's hitting the road, for example, the electric vehicle cars, but they're not understanding how critical our industry is to producing those metals and minerals. And how can we start to bridge that gap and convert those investors? So I thought we would jump right in um, and open it up to the three of you. You know, are you starting to see Tesla investors, for lack of a better phrase, or EV investors start to take a look at your company and your space? Yeah, I would just say, you know, Tesla investors, EV investors, I'm not sure that's really um, necessarily sort of a defined category of investor as such. They're they're really generalist investors that have just been following or chasing returns in that space. That's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. You have a demonstrated track record of Tesla or other EV-oriented equities having performed well, whether in the private markets or in the public markets. And investors just simply chase return. So, you know, to your point, Emily, they don't really understand how an EV works much different than than how an internal combustion engine vehicle works. They just know that from an investment standpoint, and investing and putting money into Tesla a few years ago has worked out well for a lot of people. So people chase those returns. So in some ways, I guess the question is, how do we, how does the mining industry demonstrate a track record of strong returns mm-hmm. to then uh, attract generalist investors? Great point. Nolan, what were you going to say? Yeah, yeah, I would completely agree with what Martin said. Um, you know, everybody understands dollars and cents. Uh, they don't always understand resource statements or engineering reports or anything of that nature. I haven't had anybody come to me. Uh, I'm World Copper is a copper-focused company, not really, uh, you know, battery metal, so to speak. But nobody's come to me and said, you know, I'm an investor in Tesla and I see where copper is going. I want to be a part of uh, linking that in with my investment into Tesla yet. I think it is a very generalist crowd. Maybe at the early stages, some people who were investing in Tesla were thinking about the bigger picture about where EVs were going. I'm talking about a decade ago or so. Nowadays, the vast majority are probably just people who are chasing returns, like Martin said. So the mining industry has a track record, especially in the junior space, of not really delivering the returns. There's hundreds, hundreds or thousands of mining companies out there. Not a lot of them get to be very successful. So, you know, fundamentally, I think we need to focus on fundamentals, on what creates value, generates value for shareholders, and then get that message across to them. What do you think, Belinda? 
I have not had uh, any of those investors that would per se would be interested in, uh, you know, in a Tesla stock coming to us. But what I think is interesting, well, there's two things. First of all, we're not a cash flowing enterprise. So what's appealing, as, as Martin pointed out, is the chasing returns based on these cash flow multiples and the expansion of that multiple, the more that you're in the EV space, you can see you know, 30, 40 time multiples on your EBITDA as opposed to mining, which is much less, right? Seven times or less or not producing, you don't have the multiple at all. So there is that piece that's in the way. But I think what um, what I'm finding, and I've thought about this a lot as somebody who's moved from precious metals into the critical minerals space is when I'm just out and about talking to people in the coffee shop, they know what a Tesla is, they know what an electric vehicle should do, but critical minerals, less so, particularly since there's over 30 of them. So what the function is of each one of those in their daily lives, people are generally still unaware. So, I mean, it goes a little bit further to, I think, where the conversation is going to go to, but it's it's really, I think, uh, changing the language, the vernacular on how we talk about our business to being critical minerals, to being new energy, as opposed to mining, in my view. I also think that, uh, you know, as you said, Belinda, that it's what people are focused on and what they see. And I, I think that people take raw resources for granted if they're not buying it on a store shelf or seeing the price go up in their hands. They see it from the different products and they think, oh, the car companies are making a boatload of money or whatnot, but they're not seeing that that's because the critical minerals are that are feeding into that are becoming harder and harder to find. So we need to create that connection for people too, because I've talked with a lot of people and say, well, you know, we'll just make more copper mines. We'll just make more lithium mines. Yeah. Like you can just flip a switch <laughs> and suddenly, you know, you've got this massive supply coming online. It just doesn't work like that, right? Maybe things like iron or aluminum, or which were, are much more abundant, but you know, copper is getting into the realm of, uh, of being tighter supply, as certainly like lithium or other minerals as well. I think that goes to something else that that we've probably all seen, which is we do a great job of talking to each other inside the industry and a little bit of an echo chamber there. Like we all know how important this is, but how we communicate outside of our industry can sometimes be really overwhelming filled with jargon and maybe really intimidating to people just at a basic like education, as you were saying, Nolan, about, you know, how long does it take to find and build and bring into production a copper project, right? And how many copper exploration projects out there will actually turn into a mine? Like those are, you know, those are kind of basic things or, or relatively basic things about the industry that I agree. There's really lack of awareness. And partly I think because of how our industry talks about geology and mining and the financing of mines and the building of mines, right? I think we we need to figure out a different way to communicate out of the bubble a little bit. I, maybe I'll address that. You know, I, I love the people I work with who are technicians, who are professionals in their field, engineers and geologists. I am now not one of those. And I think part of it is you know, changing the message, but also the messenger and the way that I communicate the way that I like to communicate about what I'm doing is on the level where somebody who is not from the industry will understand the fundamentals, will understand the risks mm -hmm. and the opportunities. 
from a generalist level. So I think there's, I think it's great opportunity to bring more non-technical people into the critical minerals business and into new energy so that we can change the conversation to be around the level of what this mineral does in our daily lives, its uses, its functions, and how long it takes to get out of, out of the ground, all of the things that we worry about, the metallurgy, the processing. But I think, yeah, to answer your question there, I think the messenger and who is delivering that message to the public, let's all consider, you know, maybe that can also be refreshed. Yeah, and I wonder, Martin, do you have any thoughts on that in, in line with what you were speaking about with the, the return focus, clearly, with a generalist investor, of how that might be maybe better shaped in the industry or things we can improve on to attract those folks? Yeah, a couple things. I would say that, first of all, I think the, the, the diversified major companies have a huge role to play. I do think that they underspend on sort of public outreach, on just simple things like advertising, marketing, and um, advocacy from a from a policy standpoint, you know, I would suggest they can do a better job and, and it would actually serve their interest to expand their, their expenditures in that realm. Even fairly simple things like I, I live in Vancouver and uh, Tech Resources has had a fairly extensive uh, program of advertising over the last year, year and a half during the pandemic, talking to people about the sort of the properties of copper and the way in which it can be used in public transport and on various high touch surfaces to you know, reduce the spread of, of viruses and that sort of thing. And, and that's, that, that's a compelling way to kind of link people's understanding of the importance of copper to our health and safety and to the broader economy and society. And so initiatives like that, I think I would applaud and, and would encourage other larger companies who frankly have the budgets that the junior companies don't have to, to spend in that way. With respect to, again, back to the point of, of sort of attracting generalist investors or EV investors or however we want to characterize them, I have found certainly over the last six to 12 months, there's a tremendous tailwind uh, in, in being able to tell the story with that as the backdrop to tell the value story of why potentially investing in junior mining um, is, is a smart thing for, for investors or speculators to be looking at. We're really in the, what I would call uh, the analogy I make in those types of meetings with very sort of generalist uh, investors, people who didn't know little to nothing about mining is that you know the EV uh, battery supply chain and that whole industry, the analogy is to the, let's say the California gold rush. And the people who really made money in the California gold rush were not the prospectors. It was actually the, the individuals who are smart enough to sell the, the picks and shovels to those people who had ambitions to, to find uh, gold in, in California. And the mining industry were really in the picks and shovels business in that analogy. We are providing the underlying tools that are gonna be used whether Tesla wins, whether Ford wins, whether General Motors wins, uh, et cetera, we're going to be supplying to, to each of those businesses. So people don't have to kind of do the math of trying to figure out who the winner is from an automaker standpoint. If they're investing in natural resources, they, they'll, they'll win either way. Yeah, and I wonder, I, I think the reason we made it really specific, like this panel topic around Tesla, right, and electric vehicles specifically, is because there's a huge amount of interest in the groups of people that I certainly consider non-traditional mining investors, right? And how do we create that same allure, perhaps, or attractiveness and interest level, for lack of a better word, like, how do we make it cool and sexy, right, to own a, a lithium stock, a nickel stock, a copper stock, a graphite? Stock. Like, how do we create that excitement about what we do as an industry in the same way? Because 
you know, I often find it interesting, this dichotomy or or this difference between how high tech our sector really is in many ways and how fun it is <laughs> and how diverse it is, right? Like I always remind folks, like we, we have kind of a bad rap as an industry from an environmental perspective and from a business perspective, like a lot of people get into mining and geology because they like to be outside. They're really fun to hang out with. We have great parties at conferences. Like we're, we're fun, cool people, right? And, uh, you know, we do really cool stuff. A lot of the technology that we use in the discovery side and the operations side, people are blown away, you know, when they, when they kind of hear all of the cool stuff that we do. And I often wonder how can we as an industry kind of present that differently and be accurate, right? Not try to greenwash, not try to just have it be a bunch of marketing brochures, but be more, you know, be more accurate and authentic about who we are and, and the value we bring. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Emily. It is a very exciting industry. What it's what attracts me to it. When I first saw, you know, a sagnal spinning bigger than many houses, uh, you know, people I think have this view of mines as maybe small, and suddenly the the material just magically pops out. Maybe if there was like a TV show or something set <laughs> in the in a big mine or something like that, uh, that would attract people's attention. But really, it's getting the message out there one by one. Uh, you know, we're trying to get all those those investors because they see the potential for profits in the future. They're generally long-term holders, especially people who got into Tesla years ago. As I mentioned, they they are they're not there understanding that you know Tesla's going to pop in six months. They're thinking about where Tesla's going to be in 10 years. And I think they're the perfect type of investor for mining because you know we do talk to a lot of I talk to a lot of investors that expect for you know my stock or others to pop very quickly and when it doesn't they get disappointed but we need to attract more of those those people that you know have a 10-year 5-10 year horizon understand that it's not, uh, not going to happen overnight that it's going to take a lot of work to do it and then they if we get them on board they start spreading the message and that's kind of what also fueled tesla's growth and other companies and primarily in the tech space and I also would like to draw connections to people that mining exploration companies are like startups. We're all pre-revenue, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so if you have no problem investing in a tech company that's not going to be generating profits and going to be doing raises for five or 10 years before profitability, before being bought out, that's kind of what we've been doing for the last 30, 40 years, right? Um, yeah. So you start draw those connections, people will do start to see the connection and, and they get involved in it. Totally agree on the startup side. I mean, running, I mean, Prospector is all, I mean, we're, we're mm -hmm. a tech startup in the mining space, right? So it is interesting because when we talk to folks, if they're approaching us from a technology side, the types of questions we get, as opposed to when we talk to folks in the industry about what we do, that's kind of where the, a lot of this comes from, uh, from my side. Like, how do we bring those two groups together? Because like you said, interest, you know, investment timelines and expectations really are aligned, right? And even culturally, I think, uh, pretty aligned um, from the, the startup space and the, and the mining exploration space. Linda or Martin, any thoughts on that? I mean, I would add that, and I think we've been talking about it a little bit, the more that we can talk about what we do as a vital part of the supply chain, that it's not upstream or downstream anymore, it's the merging of the two. And the more we can tell the story around that, I think that resonates a lot with, with people that you are, there's a purpose to mining the product that you have. And that purpose is a climate success story. It's about working to create these success stories in all of the minerals that we are working on. It's to reduce greenhouse gases 
And to do that on an accelerated basis, well, that's hard. That's tough in our business, as, as you've pointed out. And we all know the timelines don't really, you know, scream out acceleration. <laughs> yeah. But yet we need to bring people on that journey, leave nobody behind on that journey, all the communities, all the stakeholders and the right holders. So the only way to accelerate is by doing it with people. And that's really what we're trying to do is tell a story where mining is a very small part, actually, of what we're trying to do right now. It's, it's a lot bigger than that. And I think that to me is exciting. I don't know if it's as hot as a tech story might be, <laughs> but we're trying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I think story is always compelling, right? Because it lets people see the bigger vision. And I think that's part of what I love about being able to go out to sites Right. I'm always amazed that more people don't go on site visits, of course, with COVID restrictions currently going on. But, you know, the story that a, that a deposit tells in the community and the mine itself, I think, you know, people, it's a really cool project to invest in and be a part of. Right. If you can make people really connect um, with that location and, and what's going on there on the ground. In terms of story, sorry, I would just add, Emily, like it, it, I think there's a really compelling story to be told to generalist investors or uh, other more diverse groups that, you know, quite simply, it, uh, mining is required to sort of save the planet. Um, you know, I, that may sound a bit grandiose, but it, it, it's, you know, if you're if you're a believer in sort of climate change and and the need to sort of mitigate carbon emissions, that doesn't happen without mining. Period. Full stop. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how much more compelling a sales pitch you can have than to say that your business is fundamental to the survival of the planet. And again, I would say this is an area where the, the diversified mining companies can be a lot more, I would suggest, aggressive in advocating and, and, and playing a policy role, as well as, you know, just brute force spending of advertising to ensure that we can gain social license for uh, projects uh, in the types of regions where, you know, those major mining companies would like ideally to operate their, their, their mines. That's a great point. Um, I was glad to hear you echo because uh, we were listening earlier to the presentation from the Wilson Center, and I'm I'm a member of that critical minerals working group. And one of the takeaways on the last meeting that we had was the, you know, that this is really an important opportunity in the U.S. at least uh, to communicate as an industry about the role that mining and exploration plays in the U.S. you know critical supply chain, critical mineral space. And that it can't just be coming from one company because then people just think, well, of course, it's in your best interest, right? <laughs> you're a company marketing why you're the best people to invest in and, you know, all that stuff. And it really, I, I do think we need a new model for how to speak as an industry and as a community on those issues and that story, because it isn't a company specific story. It really is about us as a collective. Really good to have you here, Emily. Thank you, Martin, Belinda, and Nolan, once again, for your participation. Wish you all a great rest of the day. Thank you, everyone. And there you have it, another episode of the Northern Miner podcast that concludes our Global Mining Symposium coverage. And I am going to see if I can get Jeffrey Christian on the line for next week. Hopefully he's not on vacation to see what he thinks about this whole gold situation, where we are. Is it performing well? Is it not performing well? What about the Russian gold? All that stuff. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you once again for listening. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.